I'm Toby Haydock. Enough of the Sydney Carton heroics. Mm, no, not on your Nelly. Uh, well, um, I'm on Regent Street. Um, I'm, I, I'm very uh, grateful to meet an actor uh, I've watched on television in many things over the years who's met me for a chocolate muffin and a cappuccino. So I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Mm, my mouth's full of um, chocolate muffin. Paul <laughs> Shelley. And I was in Doctor Who many years ago, 1980-81. I'm sure Toby could tell us the exact date. Um... It was called... Fort Doomsday. Fort Doomsday, I always forget. But then when you forget... Mm, uh, Fort Doomsday, that's it. That's why I'm here talking to him. Yeah. And it didn't take a lot of uh, friendly persuasion uh, to uh, get you here, so I'm no, grateful no. to you for coming. Mm. I mean, is, is it strange that an actor who's done a lot over the years, do you find it odd that people contact you about one job you did back in, <laughs> you know, back in the day? Well, I've got used to it. It was actually directed by uh, a director called John Black, who I had shared a flat with when he was at university at St Andrews, and I was at university in London, King's London, and we happened to meet in this flat. He was just one of the flatmates, and we got to know each other quite well, and then he became a TV director. And I hadn't seen him for years, and he rang my agent and said, would he, would he do this in um, Doctor Who? And I said, yes. Um, and it had all of those wonderful actors, Bert Kwok and Philip Locke, of sainted memory. Um, lovely actors, all of them. And it was Peter Davison's first to be recorded, but fourth to go out. The second to go out, but first second to, recorded, to yeah. go out. Okay, I know that for some reason they put it off, but it was yeah. his first. So he, there he was in this new costume and. You know, the cricket costume. Um, so it was all very... I mean, we were just doing our first Doctor Who. I think all of us were doing our first. I certainly was doing my first and only one. And I played Persuasion. And, uh, and I was a frog. Uh, you, were, you started off I in a, a mask, frog. but yep. fortunately for you and your agent and the great British public, you, uh, you got rid of the frog pretty quickly and became quite dapper in a velvet green jacket. I know, and I always had this idea, which I put to John, but he wouldn't... Also, just a, another footnote, that John Nathan Turner, this was, Toby will correct me, his first... I think. No, he'd done one year before that. Paddy, Paddy, okay. But it was his first on his own because he had Barry Letts as an exec. That's right. I knew there was a first somewhere and it was his first. And we did have a lot of laughs in rehearsal, I'm afraid. Sometimes too many. And John Black had to come down and tell us, come on, this is serious, guys. Um, This isn't Blake Seven, was the story. You know, that's what I used to say. And then, years later, I did a Blake Seven and... Sure enough, during rehearsal they said, now come on guys, this isn't Doctor Who. <laughs> and absolutely true, there is no, no word of a lie. They both, both did that. But um, I had an idea about persuasion, that, that if I was a frog, and was seen originally as a frog, and then suddenly I did a transformation, as you do in Doctor Who, that they should make sure they knew who it was, and at one point, I should just open my shirt and scratch myself, and you should see the frog underneath. But they didn't do it. 
there was my idea for them and they threw it away squandered it anyway there we are a great lost there moment uh, a lost moment uh, John Nathan Turner mm. so um, but you remember him as being good fun he was good fun but he was a little bit nervous at the, the amount we were laughing because you you know you're doing Doctor Who mm. it's a laugh you've got to have a laugh you can't be too serious about playing a frog um, and so we did laugh a lot Philip Locke was particularly naughty oh I mustn't I mustn't speak ill of the, uh, the departed but he was wonderfully naughty and used to wink with his good eye um, in the middle of rehearsal and that made us laugh a lot because the other one stayed staring you know but he used to wink with his good one um, <laughs> anyway but no John John was wonderful he was a wonderful and very serious producer who fun at the right time but very serious about the job he was doing which you know you have to be yes the listeners may not be aware that yes Philip Locke had, had a glass eye is yep. that right yep. and, uh, and your boss of course was another fine actor Stratford Johns Stratford Johns was just lovely to work with. Um, of course, we were in rehearsal, as we did in those days, and then you'd go into the studio for two, three days, four days, I can't remember how long. It was a lot of makeup. And Stratford played Chief Frog, of course. And um, he was wonderful in rehearsal. And then we, we went into the makeup room, and he came out five hours later. And he didn't look like a frog anymore. And because they covered him in all sorts of stuff, and I said, well, you should have just got a paint can and sprayed him green. That would have been fine, but they put all sorts of stuff on him. But anyway, no, he was wonderful. Uh, you know, sad loss. Memories, memories. Memories of people who, to me, were my kind of guiders in terms of acting. Stratford Johns, Paul Eddington, oh. Nigel Stock. I mean, people that I worked with and I was at that stage where I would sit back and look at them and think, how, how are you doing that? You do that so easily. How, how, how? And of course, I, I know how they did it. They worked very, very, very hard at home. And then they came in and they were able to chat and nip into it. I mean, that's, that, that's what I admired. I'm interested you mentioned uh, Stock because he was a fun and it was curious I look back and I remember when Nigel Stock died and I imagine oh he must have been very old and he was only in his 60s yeah, you know. yeah but he always played older characters yeah. he was that sort of older character I did uh, Tale of Two Cities with him and he played with Vivian Merchant also um, also of sainted memory it'll all be of sainted memory this podcast I'm afraid <laughs> right. it's, it's nice to give credit where credit is oh these are the people I learned from but particularly Paul Stratford on that on that show because of course Zed Cars was in the past and I was very admiring of Stratford from that um, but then Paul Eddington I worked with on stage for nine ten months in Absurd Person Singular in London and um, Nigel, I worked with in the, the eight episode series of uh, Tale of Two Cities. And um, I just used to marvel at the ease with which they did what they did while I was struggling along and probably overacting like mad. And I thought, oh, I must calm down. They, they do it so easily, you know. Less is more. Oh. And, and yeah. as you alluded to, it was Peter Davison's uh, first time as Doctor Who. Mm. I have always thought he's a, a rather underrated actor, Peter, because yes. he has that, that... Peter's another actor who, um, although I haven't seen him in anything recently, but I noted then, Peter makes it look easy. 
Peter makes it look very easy, very relaxed, and that's always much easier to watch, isn't it? Yeah. Um, there are the fireworks actors who shall be nameless, um, <laughs> and they don't they don't do much for me. But it's the ones who make it look so easy do it for me anyway and yeah. so the, as you say the temptation when you're doing something otherworldly like Doctor Who is to, is to have a laugh with it so, so what is it that, that, that you do to keep it real when you're playing an intergalactic space frog well it was quite serious for me then because it was my first I suppose but Philip made us laugh um, and Burke was quite jolly um, um, and um, and certainly John Black um, and John did come down I remember onto the studio floor when we were doing it and said now come on guys come on this is serious you've got to I know we've had a laugh but you've got to be serious so he certainly sharpened us and we realised we were taking a bit too long corpsing a bit too much um, but in the end you know we got it we did it you have to do it even though it's Aboriginal dancers and you don't quite know what the story is about and the foot, the football eye in the air the, oh yes the monoptica they, yeah the monoptica yeah <laughs> oh yes but of course Doctor Who is just a small part of your so how would how would you and your brother is an actor so he is he still you, is were, yeah. were you from a, a was was the theatre in your family as you were growing only up only him only him he started when he was 14, 15 we grew up in Leeds we're a Yorkshire family. He was um, educated at St. Michael's College in Leeds. Um, I was eight when I left Leeds. He's older than me, 15 years older than me. Um, and he sort of realized that he had to refine his voice. So he didn't go into any training. He did all his own self-training, as it were. Yeah. And um, so I suppose he's been an actor for about 70 years, which mm. is quite, quite good. He doesn't do it anymore. A bit a little bit frail now but he's still going still got his brain and his sense of humor which is wonderful uh, he was the only one and i went to university down here at king's london and um because i didn't want to be an actor i thought it was silly i thought it what he did was i was fun going to see him but i thought it was a silly profession and um then i went to king's and studied english did my degree and while I was there I thought oh, well I like I, I, no reason why I shouldn't direct a couple of plays so I got involved with the drama society and I'm afraid the old hook got stuck in my craw and I couldn't get it out so I then my dad said you're not going to do what your brother did um, which is just start and struggle you're going to go to drama school and get a training so I, I auditioned and I went to RADA and um, on the day that Alan Armstrong, we got to know each other that day, sitting on the grass at Russell Square, waiting for the result. In those days, you would audition in the morning for RADA. You'd go back at lunchtime. You'd all go back. You'd get either the thumbs up or the thumbs down to come back in and do another audition for the principal, who was John Fernald at the time. And we went back together. We'd had a sandwich uh, and a beer, probably, and a fag in those days. <laughs> And uh, that we went back in together, and he got the thumbs down, and I got the thumbs up. And there you are. That's to prove that Good. drama schools don't always get it right, because Alan is just one of the most wonderful actors. He makes it look easy as well. Mm. And, but he went on, not sure, I don't think he went to drama school at all. He just went on and got work. 
and um, so yeah and we've been friends for a long time I've seen him for a bit it's too successful <laughs> that's a nice message for all the, the aspiring actors well, out there is, Alan Armstrong got turned down by Rada it is you know yeah extraordinary yeah, yeah. Extraordinary. true um, and he probably didn't look right that's the thing he you know now that's not that not the case anymore but Alan probably didn't look right you know he's that's a character face that's mm. a tough strong if you like working class face and they probably thought no he doesn't look right he's not going to get work well how well, wrong can you be uh, interesting you do have Doctor Who connections with it I saw you play in my favourite Shakespeare play Anthony and Cleopatra oh. Octavius Caesar at the Ludlow Festival yes. and that was chock full of Doctor Who Dennis Lill was Mark Anthony yes. Eleanor Braun was Cleopatra yes. and the wonderful Jerome Willis was yeah. Una Barbus yes and it was, and but it was directed by Peter Cregeen that's right who is a fine Shakespearean director but Doctor Who fans mostly know him as the guy that tried to get rid of Doctor Who and it was at BBC oh god I didn't know that <laughs> I did not know that I knew Peter because I lived in Richmond then and with my first wife Eileen Nicholas who was in that production playing Octavia so he asked us both and we knew him socially locally uh, and I'd never worked for him and um, he said would you like to come up to London and we said oh yeah and we took the children two small children then quite big now um, and what oh the other act wonderful actor who again has since died Michael N. Harbour yeah a wonderful wonderful act and I did something with him a pilot of a television comedy series called The Last Word um, just a pilot it didn't work but again he was in that very funny in that um, uh, yes uh, it, uh, it was lovely but I've since done Anthony and Cleopatra again of course with Mark Rylands playing Cleopatra and me playing Anthony at the Globe. Not quite his last season there, but no, not even nearly his last season there. I think he left in to the middle of the noughties, 2004, 2005. Um, we did it in 1999 together. So I had to snog Mark a few times. <laughs> quite nice I was quite surprised it was fine <laughs> um, and I did Julius Caesar that year as well so uh, and got married at the time in the middle of the season as well to my second wife Paula Stockbridge so um, yeah um, yeah Anthony and Cleo that's quite a difficult play but one of your favourites yeah I, I really gather like yeah. yeah I really like it and my, and my other the one that got me made me want to become an actor was when I did um, the Scottish play for GCSE and that sort of straddles your career because you were in Polanski's as Donald Bain where you get the final shot as you limp back on with the suggestion being that there's another dictator in the wings and then very recently you've done Duncan that, that went to town I am and the film because we did the film I couldn't stay in New York to do it there because I was directing something over here and I had to come back and um, because we went from Chichester to the Gielwood Theatre in London and then to the Brooklyn Academy of Music and then they wanted to take it to Broadway for eight weeks and I was already promised forth um, to do a production of Man Four Seasons up in New York and I hadn't done much directing and I was so keen to do that and Rupert Gould, the director of the Macbeth, said, um, can, you do, can you do six weeks, seven weeks? Can you not put it off a bit? And I said, no, I can't. 
but he decided that if I could only do six weeks, which I think we said, or five weeks, something like that, he didn't want, frankly, to put the understudy on for so long on Broadway. So he decided to recast, and I said, I think it's, I think it's best, Rupert, that you, you do that for both of us. And I'll finish it, bam. So, sadly, I've never been to Broadway. <laughs> I know, it was the opportunity. And they all went to Broadway. But then when he came back, and they were doing the film, then he asked me to do Duncan again in the film, which was lovely. And I think I am the only actor, certainly on film, in a Macbeth film, who has played the father and the son, son. in two separate Sure. And quite of, nice. And, of course, Polanski is uh, yeah. a very interesting figure. What was he like to work with? He's very small, um, and um, he, he, he was such a figure already. I mean, he was such a figure. And, of course, the Sharon Tate murder had happened really quite recently, I think maybe 69, and we were filming in 70, 71. Uh, and uh, it, it, therefore, there was something more about mm. him that was a little bit, little bit frightening. It was Playboy Money, it was Victor Lowndes and Hugh Hefner put their money into this, and it was an extraordinary um, thing, really. This Shakespearean tragedy being being bankrolled by Playboy. It was Hugh Hefner's birthday, Victor Lowndes, Hugh Hefner's birthday at some point during rehearsal, during filming, and we were out in Wales, and they were doing the witches' scene. And the witches scene in that is not just the three who begin, but about 20 or 30 of them gathered in this cavern with smoke and all. And uh, they all took their clothes off, totally naked, and some of them were not quite, you know, the most beautiful uh, witches in the world. And they sang at the end of the day on film, uh, Happy birthday to Victor, uh, to to Hugh Hefner, and send it over with the rushes. So um, that's that's a little bit of um, a little bit of film history that most people, unless they were on the film, don't know. It was great. It was wonderful. I mean, you know, we were filming in Lindisfarne, Bamburgh Castle, Wales. Uh, taught us to ride. Taught all of us to ride. Uh, Roman asked at the interview, "Can you?" You, you ride, Paul. You, you ride. I said, "Oh yeah, and we all do, don't we? Yeah. We, we do everything <laughs> at the interviews." And he said, "Ah, that's good. That's good." Anyway, they took us up there and taught us to ride for three or four weeks before we started filming. Those were the days. I was on that film. I worked it out for about eight months, and they had cut Donald Bean down to about ten, twelve lines. So I thought it was quite, quite a good rate <laughs> per line. And from the big screen to the small, um, the tale of two cities was a great part of you. And I believe was that that was produced by Barry Letts, who was a Barry former Letts. Doctor Who producer. Yes, Terence Dix was involved too. That's right. And Michael E. Bryant, yes, was the director, who was and also he, a Doctor Who director. Yes, and also um, a Secret Army director. Yeah. I'd done my Secret Army seventy-eight, seventy-nine, and he thought I'd be a good idea to do them both. And I think it's right to do. Uh, uh, both characters, Dar Charles Darnay and Sidney Carr, I think must be played by the same actor. Although so often, you know, the stars want to play Sidney Carton and don't want to play Charles Darnay because they find him a bit boring. But I just love playing both of them. 
and they had by then 1980 I think it was the technology to lock off the camera and have me play scenes with myself and I had a you know I had an understudy so that who stepped into my clothes shot from the back of his head and all that and um, I remember Michael Bryant E. Bryant saying to me he'd shown the, the particular scene when Car Carton and Dane talk to each other across the table in a restaurant and they you know and Carton's drunk and Dane is a bit sort of standoffish and and um, Michael did the scene locked off camera cut it together so that he kept going between the two and it, and he said I showed it to my children last night and neither and his children were in their early teens early to mid teens and he said and they said why are you showing us this and they had no idea that it was the same actor playing both parts which was just and he said honestly I'm not I had no idea it was the same actor they looked alike they have to look alike for the story to work they have to be so alike otherwise it just doesn't work at the end when Carton gets him out of the prison and carries on to the scaffold um, so that was that was lovely. That sounds like I'm very modest, but I was just what I w it does sound immodest of me to say that. But it wasn't that. It was the way, or I always say, the way that Michael shot it was that he didn't use the clever double shot too much. He just flicked between as if there were two actors, and he didn't over use the double. He didn't show his working exactly, and um, and that's why they, they, you know no one particularly drew attention to it. But at that time, in 1980, it was quite good. It was quite, the technology was quite good and used carefully, you know. Of course, they'd use double shooting, someone playing the same part, and twins and so on, and, and the man in the eye mask and all that sort of thing before. But not as, I thought, not as subtly as this. So, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Uh, lovely. lovely you, you mentioned that that came off the back of a, a series that we talked about uh, before we started recording, which I, I do think is a, a fine yeah. drama that has yeah. been almost lost in the shadow of a lower low. The, yeah. It was Secret Army, yeah. which, you, yeah. which you did that wonderful thing for an actor of his. You went in as a guest part yeah, and yeah. came back as a regular. Yeah, it was lovely that. When they I'd done my first episode called Silver Peace with uh, Victor Zuritelis, who you're telling me is now in Australia and still around. It was lovely, and he gave me that part, and I loved playing that. Um, and then with the next series, I think I, that was series two, and then they did series three, and they asked me back to do four four episodes. I think in the in the final series, they didn't do it again. Yeah. Um, so there were only three series of it, and I have seen that recently. And you were saying you've seen it recently, and it really does keep hold up. It holds up, given that nowadays you'd be spending, I don't know, a hundredfold the money that they were able to, that was allotted to these series then. Because we would rehearse, we'd do a bit of filming, and then in the studio for a day, two days sometimes, and then that was it, you were on to the next. So we'd, be, we'd do an episode a week. And, um, and maybe there'd be two or three weeks of filming outside of that, but it was quick. It was quite quick. Mm. And you, you were saying before that you, you, you'd worked with another doctor, you worked with Colin Baker. Yes, in theatre, in our youth, at the Marlowe Theatre, with June Brown and Bob Arnold. Um, I mean, June is now, of course, Doc Cotton to everybody. 
but a wonderful theatre actress. I mean, I was quite in awe of June, only because of the way the way she worked and her strength and power on stage. I mean, um, and then Doc Cotton came along, of course, and I don't know that she's done anything on stage since that. I mean, you don't have the time or energy, you know. Uh, but, but Colin and I played the sons in uh, Lion in Winter. He played Geoffrey and I played Richard. He was good value. He was very good value. Um, you know, these actors and actresses, they come and go and a lot sort of just think, oh, this is, this is too much of a struggle. I mean, it's true. It is a hell of a struggle if you don't get kind of a pigeonhole. We all need a pigeonhole to be able to keep working. And um, I suppose I keep working simply because I enjoy it. Whenever it comes up, I tend to look at the, you know, the part, the money, of course. And um, I just love it. And we'll go on until I drop, I think. Uh, or until the work completely dries up. Well, of course, you can't work if the work dries up, so that's obvious. But you've, you've, you've been regularly gamefully employed. Regularly gamefully employed, but it, it, it sort of... There's less. There's less and less now. Um, and in, in a way, that's fine. Because in a way, I'm, I'm 70 now. And uh, I've got a lot of other things to do. I live out of town uh, happily in the thatch cottage. Can't enjoy it in this weather. Um, out in the country. Um, and uh, whenever work comes, I did a little tour last year of Medea with uh, Rachel Sterling um, and it was a modern version by a, a gorgeous writer Mike Bartlett who's had a lot of success I did his Earthquakes in London tour the, the year before so I I love the work I do I don't think I don't think I pursue it enough I've never been ambitious and uh, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing um, well it must be a good thing for me because I'm not it doesn't eat me up at all and I think if you're not wanted anymore that's fine I don't take it personally you know what I mean I don't take it personally I think well if I'm not wanted I'm not wanted that's fine I've had a good innings I've enjoyed it um, living off the old pensions now and um, not not a fortune but um, you know that, that's that's how I think of it and if I'm wanted and someone has a part oh I'll look at that oh that's lovely stay healthy um, and that's my charity what, which is the Actors Children's Trust which is tacked uh, yeah that is, that's my charity should I be saying that yes, now? no that's oh, no, fine because no, 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 we're rounding up anyway yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so it just remains yeah. for me to ask and it's the grip of sci-fi because as we've established in this interview your work encompasses so many other things so I'm very grateful that you agreed to meet me for a cappuccino and a, a sci-fi hinged chat. Uh, and Doctor Who is 50 this year. It started the day yes. after the assassination of John F. Kennedy on the 23rd of November 1963. Oh, God, you're full of wonderful facts. Uh, so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? Oh, keep watching. Oh, I, I keep watching. <laughs> My message to them. Keep watching. Keep coming up with um, oh, those wonderful photographs. I'll keep signing if you want until I'm totally forgotten and yeah yeah well it just remains for me to say for your time and for your enthusiasm Aww. Paul Shelley thank you very much great pleasure Toby thank you
I hope that was okay for you. That was great. Paul's charity is the Actors Children's Trust, who can be found online at www.tactactors.org, which is T A C T A C T O R S, tactactors.org. Uh, and if you can donate, that would be much appreciated. And if you can't, I understand there's a recession on. Sorry about the noisy background. Needs must. Uh, next up, we are right up to date with someone who will enable me to cross a fair few new series episodes off my list. A list that is on my blog at www.tobyhaydock.com where you'll find the stories that I have covered already in red and the alarming number that I have yet to do in black. Feel free to put me in touch if your uncle was in the smugglers, please. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter, at Toby Haydoke, and befriend me on Facebook. I say yes to anyone. I'm Toby Haydoke, and this is one of my dropping-off times. See you. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Lost Stories, The Dark Planet. Welcome to our city. Welcome to the city of the light. Relighting a sun? Isn't that uh, rather ambitious? My ambition is not your worry. That is why it must be guarded from the shadows. They are base creatures. They will be no more when Numir sees its eternal dawn. Deep underground, beneath the traveller's feet, below the surface of the planet, something felt their presence. The rock cemented in his grasp. Vicky, come away! Where are you? I, I can't find you. They burn all who are unlike them. Then we've got to get in there. Can you help us? Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.